Hi everybody, Mike Wardrock from Encounter Church here, and thanks so much for tuning into our podcast. Our prayer is that through this podcast, you could have an encounter with Jesus that will change your life. And now get ready for an inspiring message from our teaching team. special uh, because it's an opportunity. One of the things that we get taught in Scripture is that all of us have different gifts that we bring. And there's really only one way to discover what gifts we have, and that is to test them. That is, like, you don't know if you're any good at sports until you go out and have a crack. You, you really don't know if you're any good at reading until you begin to read. Do you know what I mean? You have to test your gifts in order to find out if you've really got them or not. And so that's what we do. We give an opportunity for each of our interns that they don't have to take, but that we love them to take, to come up and and test whether they've got the gift of preaching and to share from themselves and and through the Word of God about what they've been learning in internship and about what God is saying through a particular passage of Scripture. And the passages that we, I, have given to uh, all the interns are some of the parables that Jesus teaches in Matthew. And parables are stories. They're stories designed that Jesus gives, and you're not meant to take them literally. There's a sto- message behind the message, and that's what our interns are going to be talking about. Uh, our first intern preaching this morning is Keith Wilcox. And, and just before he comes up, I just want to take a moment to honour him. Keith is a man of the Word. He loves the Word of God. He is he's a teacher, both he's going there in his profession, but he's a teacher by heart. There is a teacher at the heart of Keith. And every time he shares with people, there's a longing in him for people to understand. So the heart of Jesus in the parables that you would see what he sees, that you would hear what he hears and understand what he understands is at the heart of Keith. So I just want to honor who he is and what he brings. I just wonder, would you stand with me and welcome Keith as he comes out to bring the word of God this morning. G'day, g'day. As Mike said, my name's Keith. I haven't met you before. Hello. Um, And I'm just going to start off with reading another passage of the Bible, because it's a pretty good book. Um, So I'm just going to read from Matthew chapter 20, verses 1 to 16, and this is the NIV version. For the kingdom of heaven is like a landowner who went out early in the morning to hire men to work in his vineyard. He agreed to pay them a denarius for the day and sent them into his vineyard. At the third hour, he went out and saw others standing in the marketplace doing nothing. He told them, you also go and work in my vineyard, and I will pay you whatever is right. So they went. He went out again at about the sixth hour and the ninth hour and did the same thing. At the eleventh hour, he went out and found still others standing around, and he asked them, why have you been standing here all day long doing nothing? Because no one has hired us, they answered. He said to them, you also go and work in my vineyard. When evening came, the owner of the vineyard said to his foreman, call the workers and pay them their wages, beginning with the last one hired and going on to the first. The workers who were hired at about the 11th hour came and received a denarius. So when those who were hired first came, they expected to receive more, but each of them also received a denarius. When they received it, they began to grumble against the landowner. These men who were hired last worked only one hour, they said, and you have made them equal to us, who have been bore the burden of the work and the heat of the day. But he answered one of them, Friend, I am not being unfair to you. Didn't you agree to work for a denarius? 
Take your pay and go. I want to give the man who was hired last the same as you. Don't I have the right to do what I want with my own money? Or are you envious because I am generous? So the last will be first and the first will be last. All right. So as I said before, my name is Keith. Um, and one fun fact that I will tell you about myself is that I am a third child, more specifically number three of four. And this has meant that I've had the opportunity to grow up alongside some beautiful and wonderful siblings. And I have to say that because one of them is in the room today. But, <laughs> but in all seriousness, I do love them. But as much as I love my siblings, I feel like all of you in the room that would have siblings know that under the love, there's always that little bit of conflict within itself. And the big one that caused that in our house is chores. We all had different jobs to do around the house, whether it was cleaning the toilet, feeding the pets, and doing the vacuuming. But there was always small squabbles about who wasn't pulling their weight and who wasn't doing enough work. Um, and unfortunately, most of their squabbles were targeted at me because I am a serial slacker. <laughs> I would leave my work until the last minute and because I knew if it got to the point that it was that bad that someone else would step in and do it for me and then I didn't have to do it at all. Well, now that I've exposed a little bit about myself, Matthew chapter 20, the chapter that I just read, shares a very similar theme to this, unfairness. How is it fair that my siblings have to clean the toilet and feed the pets and do the vacuuming and I get to sit at home all day and play video games? In verses 1 to 16, which was the verses I just read out, we read a parable about a hypothetical vineyard owner that seems to make his workers all the same wage regardless of how much they work. I want to make one thing clear first. This parable is hypothetical and it's not literal economic advice. If you pay all of your workers the same money regardless of whether they work one hour or eight, one of two things is going to happen. You're probably going to go bankrupt or you're going to get a visit by the police. <laughs> Instead, like how Mike described before, parables are a hypothetical situation designed to help mortals understand what the kingdom of God will be like. Jesus is trying to use this parable to explain to the disciples and the others gathered around who are willing to hear what heaven will be like in a way they can visualise and understand. In Matthew chapter 19, which is the chapter previous to this one in the book, the other disciples had taken Jesus aside and asked him what they would receive when they went into heaven. Because, I mean, after all, they were Jesus' first disciples, so surely they should be entitled to at least business class, if not first class, in heaven. Well, Jesus answered them and he describes that they will be rewarded in heaven, but he ends this with a rather interesting sentence. In Matthew chapter 19, verse 30, we read, Many who are first will be last, and many who are last will be first. Now, this is a rather paradoxical statement because you can't be first and last at the same time, but he repeats it again at the end of Matthew chapter 20, where he says, So the last will be first, and the first will be last. What does Jesus mean by these statements, and how do they help us understand what heaven is like? Well, hopefully, I can help you understand. One of the things that the parable of the workers is really about is generosity. In the text, we read that the vineyard owner paid all of his workers one denarius for their labour. Now, I assume most of you aren't aficionados about ancient Roman currency, but thankfully that is one of the things I'm passionate about. <laughs> And so to put it in a more modern context, a denarius was worth about a day's wage. So most of the people that worked for an entire day would receive one denarius. 
And with this context, we understand that the vineyard owner is not underpaying the workers that had worked there since morning. Instead, what he is doing is way overpaying those workers that only worked for five hours or three hours or one hour. And again, why this is terrible economic advice. The workers who grumble in verse 11 are not upset because their pay is insufficient. They are grumbling because the vineyard owner has chosen to be more generous to the workers that followed afterwards. Now, I don't know about you, but when I read this passage, I tend to agree with the workers. How is it fair that those who didn't slave away all day since morning and in the heat of the day get paid the exact same wage as them? Well, before we go and out the vineyard owner as a terrible boss, let's read his response to these workers in Matthew chapter 20, verses 13 to 15. I'm not being unfair to you. Didn't you agree to work for a denarius? Take your pay and go. I want to give the man who was hired last the same as you. Don't I have the right to do what I want with my own money? Are you envious because I'm generous? I don't know about you, but for this, this response to me flips the situation on its head. It's the owner's money, and he can choose what he wants to do with it. The workers aren't angry because they've been exploited, as I said. They're angry that the owner has decided to be generous to others. But if you thought that was bad enough, there's even more. In biblical time, the workers that were waiting around in the marketplace were those not employed in other professions. They were the unemployed labourers. And they were waiting around in the marketplace to see if someone would hire them so that they could hopefully get money and eat for that day. They didn't have Centrelink back in Jesus' time, so chances are, if you didn't get hired, you just didn't eat. It was that simple. And with this context, the workers look even worse. Not only are they angry at the owner that hired them and allowed them to eat that day, they're angry that he chooses to do the same for people that only managed to find work in the final hour of the day. I wonder if this information changes how you read this passage. Given that this passage is designed to help us understand what heaven is like, let's cut through some of the analogies. The early workers, or the first people hired in this parable, are the Jews. The Jews are God's chosen people, and they were the first to worship God on earth and heed his commandments. The last workers hired, or the ones hired at the end of the day, are the Gentiles. Gentile is a fancy word that just means not Jewish. But in this context, it's talking about the Gentiles who, so the not Jewish people who have come to faith through Christ's death and resurrection and have now entered the kingdom of God. Jesus in this passage is rightfully acknowledging the work that the Jewish people have done to further the kingdom of God, but that he now also chooses to bless the Gentiles as well as the Jews. So let's get back to our first question. Is this fair? Well, the reason I think it is fair is because it's God's grace to give in the first place. Where this parable breaks from reality is that the workers earned their wage, that they earned their spot in heaven. Because, in truth, it was bought for them at a price. And that price was Jesus, the Son of God, dying on a cross. God chose to send himself in human form to take on the sin of the world and redeem it. This parable is good news. And the reason it's good news for us is because, like me, I assume most of you in the room are not Jewish. 
this parable is a reminder that God's love and grace is the same, even though we have arrived later into the kingdom of God, and that we have been promised the same gift as those that came before, life and life in the fullest. For those of you in the room that don't call yourself Christian, this passage is also an encouragement that God's generosity and love for you is the same, regardless of whether you were raised in a Christian household or you turned to him later in life. But for those of you that are Christians in the room, I would like to challenge you briefly. The way this passage is discussing Jews and Gentiles can also be applied to Christians that have been in the faith for a long time and those that have only found God recently. When we work in a job for a long time, which I can't relate to, um, (laughs) it is easier to get into habits and switch your brain into autopilot. And the same can be said about church and your faith. I, for one, have struggled in the past with habitual church. I was raised in a Christian household and I've attended church my whole life but it very much became something I did on Sunday because I should. I must admit, I do struggle sometimes to pay attention to sermons. Sorry, Mike. (laughs) But I'd like to challenge you all, um, alongside myself, to make sure you attend church with the intention to learn and grow in your faith, and not just because it's what you should do on a Sunday. I also want to encourage you that what this chapter also talks about is the fact that nobody is too old to enter the kingdom of God. And so we should continue to try and spread God's good news to all people. So good, Keith. So good. I'll uh, give you some caffeine before I preach next time. It's, um, now, we, how good is it to know that it's never too late for you with Jesus? You know, it's never too late with Jesus. There's always an opportunity. The last will be first. The first shall be last. Hey, um, our next preacher this morning is the wonderful Cara Horner. who is a woman of passion and integrity. She's a woman who knows what she believes and and fights for it, who loves people and fights for them. And if you're here because you know Cara, you know that already, so I don't need to say any more about it. But I wonder if you could stand to your feet and just give her the warmest welcome you have as Cara comes to preach the Word of God today. Whoa. (laughs) Thank you. Everyone take a seat. Thanks so much for having me here today, guys. I'm super pumped and I'm really excited to share the word with you. Okay, if you don't know me, my name is Kara. I'm Encounter's most mature, in age, intern. <laughs> Proud mum of three, wife to Tex, and an odd mix of introvert and extrovert. <laughs> so I've got to ask you, anyone in the room with siblings, how many of you have gone out of your way to get your siblings into trouble? Yeah, there's a lot of hands. (laughs) Amazing. You know the times where, like, your brother's sitting on the other side of the room and you're on the other one, you're like, Mum, he just hit me. He can't hit you. He's on the other side of the room. (laughs) I never did that because I'm awesome. Right, Mum? Dad? Yeah? Okay. (laughs) Let's be honest. We've all done it or had it done to us. I mean, like, that's what you do if you're siblings. But what about the times our friends have dobbed us in? and then somehow they've managed to get off, off the consequences. That doesn't really seem fair, does it? Now, I'm going to tell a story, and Mum, if this is the first time you're hearing this, I'm very sorry. <laughs> but when I was about 12 or 13, a whole bunch of us decided we were going to stay inside at lunchtime, and where I went to school, that was a massive no-no. 
So anyway, we're all standing in there. We've got a friend on lookout and her job is to wave her hands frantically when the teachers are coming. So anyway, we're all standing there just having a chat. Next minute, the hands are waving. So we all bolt to the alcoves. We have these big um, alcoves where we put our school bags. So we run in there and my friend says to me, hey, Cara, I reckon you could fit in that cupboard. I was like, yeah, I probably could. So not one to shy away. I concertinaed myself into a little ball and I went in the cupboard, just in time to hear the booming voice of the teacher. So as everyone's summoned out of the out to get into trouble, actually, um, my friend like taps the cupboard with her foot and she's like, don't come out. I was like, okay, okay. So anyway, I stayed in there for the remainder of lunch. <laughs> Finally, the bell goes, everyone comes back into the classroom, I go to my seat. And then it happens. My teacher calls me up and I've been sent to the principal's office. My friend dobbed me in so she could get out, yeah, right? So she could get out of trouble and I had to face the consequences. Now, my consequence was scrubbing bins, the inside of bins, for an entire week while she sat inside the classroom and had a great time. So, sorry, Mum. Anyway. Being wronged by a friend or family member or sibling can be hard. In fact, it almost hurts more because they're the people we expect to protect us and certainly not throw us under the bus. Look, truth be told, I've had my fair share of times that I've been on the other end, not just the bin cleaning end. So when these things happen, how do we deal with it? Do we hold a grudge? Do we go and attack someone else in retaliation? How we respond can define many other moments in our lives and how we respond to them. Are we an unforgiving people or do we show grace and forgiveness? And if we are an unforgiving people, how do we know that we're an unforgiving people? So this brings me to today's teaching text that I want to share with you, the parable of the unforgiving servant. Yep, that's right. I'm going to talk about unforgiveness or more so the impact that it has on your life not just in general, but also spiritually. It's such a challenging topic, one that can divide so many of us. Firstly, we need to explore what forgiveness can be defined as. Psychologists at the University of California generally define forgiveness as a conscious decision to release feelings of resentment or vengeance toward a person or group who has harmed you, regardless of whether they actually deserve it. Usually, for forgiveness to take place, there has to be an injured party and an injurer. As the injured, it's probably fair to say we hold the upper hand. We control whether we offer forgiveness or not. It's a deliberate act, a choice, a decision. So is there a difference between the way forgiveness is portrayed in the church and out of the church? Does the Bible uphold a greater view on the topic? Does forgiveness have to include two people, both the injured and the injurer? In 2007, Charles Griswold of Boston University stated that forgiveness should be understood as a moral relation between two individuals, one of whom has wronged the other and who, at least in the ideal, are capable of communication with each other. In this ideal context, forgiveness requires reciprocity between the injured and the injurer, meaning both parties have to agree to forgiveness for the benefit of both involved. Forgiveness isn't easy. In fact, it's one of the hardest things to do. Forgiving someone doesn't mean that you're approving of what someone has done 
or that you're even excusing it or denying what someone has done against you. It's also not a weird flex that you have the upper hand. As Christians, we're called to forgive. Colossians 3.13 says, The Lord has forgiven you, so, also, so you also must forgive. Or again in Mark 11.25, Forgive them even if they are not sorry. Or as the Lord's Prayer says, Forgive us our trespasses as we forgive those who trespass against us. We are being encouraged to confess our sins and seek change. In our capacity to forgive, we are showing that we have indeed been forgiven. A survey conducted by the Fetzer Institute states 62% of American adults say they know they need more forgiveness in their personal lives. In a new Barna study, 23% of practising Christians say they have one person in their lives that they just can't forgive. Do me a favour. Look up and down the row you're sitting in. 23% means that one of you sitting in that row, something like one in four of us, are unable to do something that God has explicitly instructed us to do. So if we know that it's something we need to do, and it's something we're called to do, why do so many of us find forgiveness so hard? As C.S. Lewis wrote, everyone thinks forgiveness is a lovely idea until they have something to forgive. While forgiveness can be freeing and lovely, unforgiveness can be destructive and damaging. In the parable of the unforgiving sermon from the Gospel of Matthew, we see just how destructive unforgiveness can be. We read about a servant delivered from his hefty debt, one that would literally take around 160,000 years in the economy of Jesus to pay back. Side note, if this is how much he is borrowing, why is he still a servant? Anyway, his master, in an unexpected twist of fate, takes pity on him and instead of selling the servant and his family as payment, his heart softens and with mercy, he eliminates the debt. So, the servant just had this huge, insurmountable debt wiped away, what would you do? Go and celebrate? Feel relieved and generous? I'd like to think I would, but not this guy. What does he do? He goes and seeks out a fellow servant who owed him a significantly smaller debt, approximately three, only three months' wages. And does he forgive him in graciousness? Nope. He physically assaults him and demands immediate payment. That's a weird flex. Catch this though. That is the equivalent to someone paying my mortgage off and then me abusing my mate who owes me for a coffee I bought them last week. This unforgiveness led to the destruction of relationships with other fellow servants who stood by and witnessed the whole ordeal and then the servant ended up in prison. Whilst owing money or doing wrong by others can be damaging, sometimes the act of unforgiveness can be just as damaging if not more. It can destroy relationships between people and bring others into the argument. It can cause violence and lashing out amongst those that they think have done wrong by them. Unforgiveness, as the Reverend Nikki Gumbel states, can be seen in the results of marriage breakdowns, broken relationships or even conflicts among communities. We don't earn the right to forgiveness. We were blessed with forgiveness by the selfless act of Jesus. He gave his life so that ours might be greater. Of all the things we have done and may continue to do, Jesus gave his own life. God gave the life of his only son so that we can live a life free and full of forgiveness and redemption. 
We have been forgiven repeatedly by God for indiscretions big and small, yet none of us have had to give our own lives so that the sins of others could be forgiven. In Matthew 18, 21 to 22, Peter asked Jesus, how often should I forgive my brother? How often shall my brother sin against me and I forgive him? As many as seven times? Jesus says, I do not say to you seven times, but 70 times seven, and then tells him the parable of the unforgiving servant. Quite simply put, in theological terms, God forgives all sin, and as such, so should we. American pastor John MacArthur says, forgiveness is the most godlike act a person can do. Nothing is more godlike than forgiving someone, and never are you more like God than when you forgive. Often we might say, I don't know how many more times I can forgive that person, or even once bitten, twice shy, or shame on me, shame on you if you fool me once, shame on me if you fool me twice. Yet, in his graciousness, God does not limit the amount of times that we are forgiven. And if God does not limit the forgiveness that he gives to us, why are we putting limits on others? The first servant was forgiven his debt by his master, a debt that he would likely never be able to pay back. But he begged his master for mercy and, took, and then the master took pity on him and his family and cleared the debt. And in, of, and in an act of ungratefulness, the servant seeks out a fellow servant who owes him money and physically attacks him. Where is his mercy? Where's his graciousness for the, give, for the forgiveness he received? We are so blessed that we can live our lives and walk this earth, not forgetting our forgiveness was purchased at a price. God already loved us, but his son paid the ultimate price for us, and this is both just and merciful. Forgiveness has the power to release us and gives us freedom and happiness. It gives us the opportunity to move forward without taking our past with us, to free us from the prison of our own pain. To be unforgiving means we are held captive, prisoners of our own pain and heartache. Joyce Meyer once said, harbouring unforgiveness is like drinking poison and hoping your enemy will die. I know it's not easy. I've had to forgive people who have hurt me, people I sometimes didn't think were worthy of my forgiveness, people who had hurt me so deeply that I didn't even know if forgiveness was possible. A few years back, I was deeply hurt by some friends who abandoned me at a time that I needed them most. I needed care and friendship. And at first, it was easy to be angry, to be consumed by these feelings, hold a grudge. But the negative feelings started to consume me. The days got darker, but I prayed desperately to God. I, held, I desperately prayed for him to take my pain away. As long as I held on to the anger, I couldn't move on. And through prayer, I heard God tell me, forgive them. He called me to be more like Jesus. He called me to lay those burdens down and not be a prisoner of the pain and hurt from my past. God has forgiven me for my sins more than once. And in return, he called me to forgive those who sinned against me over and over again. The freedom I felt was phenomenal. The dark clouds started to shift, my mindset shifted, and I felt peace and joy again. So if you feel like you're holding on to some hatred or pain from your past, I urge you to let it go. The freedom that I've found from forgiveness is indescribable. The hurt that I carried with me for years no longer holds me prisoner. 
My trust in God and the plans and future he has for me lets me know that forgiveness is not a sign of weakness, rather strength and power. It just shows that I'm living a life that God has called me to, a life where my past doesn't determine my future and a life of freedom. I urge you to forgive those who have sinned against you. I urge you to free yourself from the pain of your past. I urge you to be more like God. Obey his desires here on earth. Imitate the graciousness he has showed us. Be like the master in the parable, the one who forgave the debt of his servant, not the servant whose hatred left him unforgiving and jailed. As Christians, we are called to imitate Christ. One of the greatest ways that we can do this is by remembering and honouring the sacrifice that was Jesus' life. By imitating Christ, we turn from sin. We seek forgiveness and we give forgiveness. The life of Jesus was not in vain. Thanks so much for listening. I pray that you were able to hear from God in a fresh way today. We would love to hear from our listeners. To connect with us or to financially support the work of Encounter, please jump on our website, encounteradelaide.com.au. And if you enjoyed this podcast, don't forget to jump onto iTunes, Spotify or your podcast provider and give us a rating and review or share this message on your social media accounts and tag us at Encounter Adelaide. God bless. Have an amazing week.